Threadbare, the podcast where I talk to you about the realities of the textile industries. Thank you for joining me for episode 4 of Threadbare. I appreciate every single one of you who gives me some time to listen to my story. Thank you also to all of you who send in your fabulous questions. I had enough questions from all of you today to put together another great show. So thank you for creating a wonderful, wonderful show with me. I hope you enjoy this episode. fantastic question here from Christine Brooks. Christine asks, when you're working on a project and you make a mistake with the dye for the printing or the sewing, how do you resolve it? Do you keep it? Do you re-dye it? Do you overprint it? Do you start again? Do you ever throw anything away? Thank you for this fantastic question, Christine. So I think here it might be useful to uh, delve into my history a little bit uh, because I actually had quite an unusual start in a way with my failures in that I I jumped straight into mass production from the early days. So what tended to happen when I had my flea market stand in the 1990s was if I made something that, that was a reject, uh, well what I called a reject, that I knew was not going to sell, I would kind of make an assessment uh, whether it was worth working on it again or not. And in those days <coughs> I sold discounted t-shirts. They, they, my, my market couldn't sustain high pricing so uh, there was no point for me to spend a lot of time on something if I was never going to recoup the cost of that time in any way. So I kind of made an assessment of how much time I could afford to spend on any t-shirt and then when I started running into an unrealistic financial loss I would take that t-shirt and I would put it into my bargain bin where I would sell it off at cost. And this was actually very good for my customers. There were some of my customers who aspired to own my things but couldn't afford them. So this gave them a chance to scratch around in the bargain bin for something that they liked and uh, that would be functional to them and uh, at a price point that they could afford. And they didn't mind the flaws and that kind of thing because at least they were able to go home with something colorful the, uh, from my stand. So the bargain bin actually worked quite well for these customers and it was a way of clearing the stock. 
I didn't really know what I was doing in my 20s. Uh, I later learned uh, when I was older in, in business college that this was a great business practice because it's unhealthy for cash to get tied up in the business for any length of time. So very often it makes more sense to release cash by selling something at the same price that you paid for it rather than hanging on to it and and continuing to bear a financial loss because very often with these things uh, it tends to be a, a downward moving spiral where the worse it gets the worse it gets so if you can cut your losses get your money back out and turn it into useful stock once again uh, that's often a better strategy so I, I did make a lot of mistakes in the early days and all of those mistakes ended up going in a bargain bin and being sold at a discounted price and as I say they worked really well uh, for my customers who couldn't afford uh, my higher priced products then uh, at a later stage in my career I was mass producing high-end custom fabrics for the fashion industry and I had a, a very um, specific contract that I used to sign with my customers because when you're making tie-dye there is some variance in the finish. It doesn't matter how good you are at making tie-dye. Uh, about 10% of the pieces in any batch will come out looking a little bit different from the others. And very often that difference in look will be outside of the variance of what the customer is prepared to accept. So what I would have to do when I was selling tie-dye and handmade finishes was I would explain to customers upfront in all of my documentation that because it is a handmade finish they needed to um, be ready for a 10% margin for what I called their reasonable variance. Uh, so obviously as long as I, made, I aimed at whatever I promised and didn't go and make something completely different from what they'd asked for. Um, and, and there was slight variance within the finishes, the customers would still pay and accept that variance. So what actually happened during that part of my career was that I offered my customers a guarantee that if the variance was greater than that 10% that they'd agreed to upfront in any way I would I would buy my own mistakes from them so um, in the decade or so that I spent making custom textiles for people I, I only bought one one job from a customer that I'd completely hashed up where where I'd actually used the wrong color for the order and um, I, I ended up buying that entire run of garments from them to compensate. So uh, the answer is yes, I make mistakes. I've made some, some mistakes that have lost me customers. Um, and the, the answer is I've, I've had to own those mistakes financially. So it's not that I don't make mistakes. Uh, I move on from them fairly quickly because I can't afford to dwell on them emotionally. They would It would completely crush me if I had to sit and focus on every tiny thing that has gone wrong in my business over the last 25 years. So I try to move along quickly. I try to um, get the money out of the resource again as quickly as I can. So 
If it's dead stock, I put it in my bargain bin, sell it as fast as I can, get the money moving again, and then invest it in something that is more useful to my current process. Um, so yeah, and and then to carry that just a little bit further, um, currently, uh, because I spent the first 20 years of my career making very specific things for people on very, very tight deadlines, and very often working to their, their specifications, um, and now for this kind of later part of my career, I'm, I'm really enjoying just making things for the sake of making them, making what I want to make, allowing them to unfold, allowing the errors to happen, the mistakes to happen, and working them into my designs and saying, well, you know, that's the way it's supposed to look. Uh, I, I understand that the, the um, search for perfection is futile. And and on the note of perfection, I, I've uh, often talked about this with uh, Pete, my partner. He's something of a philosopher. And uh, we've kind of uh, pondered how this perfection thing came about because perfection is a notion that really doesn't exist. There is no perfect state of anything. And yet humans somehow keep striving for it. Uh, why do we strive for this unrealistic thing? And I think it possibly happened in the way that language developed. So I think uh, in our imperfect world, we in some intellectual process one day reached for a word to describe this ideal that doesn't exist and then having given it a name, we then thought that now it's something we can actually achieve. And and there really is no such thing as perfection. There are there are beautiful lines, there are, are perfect moments, I think, where the world just seems like the most perfect place to be in. Uh, I, I'm not sure there is any perfection in any work. Uh, we're all humans and, and the imperfections are in fact for me the most beautiful parts of the work very often I I used to love those garments that lived in the 10% variance that just had their own little personalities and did their own thing and spoke their own authentic voice um, out of the sameness so yeah that's how I deal with uh, imperfections and I guess I just view it all as as changes and shifts in the field uh, it's it's quite important to respond to what is rather than trying to force the world into some picture of what I think it should be I find it a far more restful and stress-free place to live in so Christine I hope that answers your question uh, thank you very much for sending in another great question for me to answer. Thank you for your gifts to co-create this beautiful show with me. I appreciate it very much.
Romy von Tonder asks, I want to build something in basic clothing, but I want to have it naturally dyed. Do you know of any commercial dyers who could provide this type of service? So when mass producing clothing, uh, it often makes sense to produce a line of basics in white that can then be dyed up into different colors as you need them on demand. Uh, it's quite an effective and efficient way of working because you can just uh, dye up a selection of samples, uh, create your calendars, your your um, your, uh, your um, catalogs using those images, uh, and then once customers start to place orders, uh, you can start to see which colors are going to be uh, successful and which ones aren't. So it's become a very, very efficient way of creating garments because now you don't make big runs of clothing in colorways that then crash and burn. And then you're stuck with stock in season colors that you can't move later. Uh, the advantage is also that uh, if you've chosen a color that didn't work, there is a chance that you can over dye it to a different color to then move the stock at a later stage. So. Um, working in white and then dyeing the garments up on demand uh, is a very very efficient way of working for a small designer. So uh, this question comes from a South African fashion designer and in South Africa there is nobody commercially producing uh, natural dyed finishes for anybody. We have one or two small dye houses that use man-made dye stuffs for their dyeing processes. Um, they're not easy to find and because there are only one or two of them you kind of have to put up with what you get from them because they are the only ones doing the job. So sometimes when they're very busy you can end up waiting for your orders um, and uh, you know you, you just have to kind of uh, do whatever they uh, say they can do. You know, you you can't go in there and make demands of them that they they should make all sorts of fancy finishes um, that are possibly outside of their reach, um, and then demand it in a very short time because it's just not going to happen. There are two dye houses; um, they can do a certain amount of stuff. So you're going to have to, at some point, uh, find a compromise um, between what you expect and what they can do and very often that compromise is also going to come along in in pricing because uh, dying service costs a lot of money and uh, very often the expectation is that dying should be cheap uh, and very often it is not so I, I would like here to talk a little bit further about the whole subject of natural versus man-made dyes because uh, it's a, a topic that comes at me quite a lot. Half of my inquiries are from people who are looking for more eco-friendly ways to color their textiles. And here I have to uh, go into my own story a little bit again. Uh, when I was mass producing for the fashion industry, my waste was 
something that bothered me a great deal. And I spent a great deal of time doing research to try to figure out ways to green my processes. So, of course, like everybody else, the very first thing I did was climb on the bandwagon and go and look for natural dye stuffs to work with. Now, in South Africa, they are very, very difficult to get hold of. Um, it is possible to get hold of indigo here. Uh, not so easy to get hold of the mordants. And um, there's one of the, the mordants that they commonly use for indigo that uh, is, is quite volatile that my suppliers won't even supply me with uh, because it, it can explode if not handled correctly. So um, getting the chemicals here in South Africa is not easy and getting them here is not cheap. Um, anybody living in South Africa will know that shipping anything into or out of South Africa is, is not an easy process. It can be quite a hit and miss process. Sometimes things don't arrive. Um, so to, to import those kinds of chemicals is actually very tricky into South Africa. We also have no local culture in South Africa of, of dying really. Um, for about 20 years I was a, a lone voice banging on my drum. There are more people dying now today. Um, it's become more fashionable to, to die up things. Uh, and still the it's it's not something that's commonly practiced we don't have a huge industry of textile dyers in South Africa so there isn't really a, a pool of knowledge or a pool of sources to work from here there are are small uh, craft dyers working in remote places doing small runs of stuff but uh, there's no real big um, dyeing happening the, the big commercial dyeing that's happening in the in the mills uh, is obviously done by machines and equipment and not by by people so um, you know in South Africa there really isn't a huge a huge amount of suppliers who are doing that kind of thing so even if I could get the chemicals um, there are a few other factors that I had to consider when I was looking into this so I, I did a historical search about natural dye stuffs and found that historically humans have been polluting the waterways for a very long time even when we were using natural dye stuffs. So uh, it's not a matter of what chemical are you using to color the cloth, it's a, a matter of how much are you using to color the cloth and as soon as you get into any mass production scenario you you have a, a waste element that that escalates and as you escalate your growth so your waste escalates with your growth uh, and and that is the challenge to deal with so even if you are using natural dye stuffs if your business grows and you start to have to uh, produce a lot of product you're still going to have to think about your waste in a mindful way you you won't be able to escape it even if you're using natural dyes then some natural dyes are made from things like the shells of beetles 
Now, I'm really not sure how grinding up thousands and thousands of beetles is more environmentally friendly than synthesizing a man-made chemical to color a cloth. Uh, lichens are very, very useful for coloring fabrics and yet you need kilos and kilos of them to dye just a small amount of fabric. And they grow very slowly. So if you're in any environment where you're going to harvest a lot of lichen to color your cloth, then it doesn't matter that you're using lichen to color the cloth, you're still going to have an environmental impact simply for harvesting the raw materials. Then also with a lot of your dyes, your uh, natural dye stuffs, the mordants that you use are, are quite scary. You know, you, you use caustic soda and those kinds of things to fix the colors to the cloth. So many of your mordants are not environmentally friendly either when using natural dyes. So this, this natural dye conversation is so much broader than people think. A lot of people just uh, kind of snap their fingers and go, oh, look, here's the easy solution. And it just is not that. Uh, the conversation needs to be much, much broader. Uh, we need to be mindful about the amount of waste we create. It's, it's not about just reaching for some magic chemical. There is no magic chemical out there that will do a better job. Uh, it's more about reducing our consumption. Do we really need to make this thing in the first place? Is it necessary? Um, and that's a very different conversation to have. So, yeah. One of the other reasons I personally, through my career, stuck to using man-made dye stuffs was because uh, my customers had an expectation. I was unable to charge the prices that I needed to to survive uh, if my colors were not washed fast and if I was not able to produce exact color matches for my, my fashion designers and, and interior decorators. So uh, with natural dye stuffs, color results are more variable and will vary depending on, on where your raw materials were harvested and what kind of conditions they were harvested in. Uh, so you've got much less control over the, the resulting colors that you get. Whereas with man-made dye stuffs, uh, it's much easier to mix recipes and replicate those recipes again and again and again. And uh, the colors are washed fast for longer with many man-made dyes uh, than with a lot of the natural dye stuffs. And your modern commercial customer has the expectation that when they walk into the store, they will buy something that is a particular color. Every single garment in that style, in every size, will be the same color. That when they get home, that color will be washed fast. It won't run out in the wash. Um, and that if they want to go and exchange it, they can go and exchange it for another garment in exactly the same color. And uh, this customer expectation is is driving the way that manufacturers work. 
you know, it's very easy for consumers to say this is the fault of corporates who are just polluting the planet. It's greedy corporates who are doing this. No, it's consumer behavior doing this. It's consumers who expect to have what they want when they want it, who are driving what's happening here. Um, and until we can own that as consumers and change our buying behavior, nothing in the world is going to change. So <coughs> I, this is my take on the man-made versus, man versus natural dye conversation. Um, I'd really like to hear from you folks because I'm quite sure that I've stirred up a hornet's nest for some of you. I know a lot of you out there listening have some very strong thoughts about natural and versus man-made dyes. Um, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, I'd love to get into the conversation further, maybe in a later show. So if you have anything to bounce back at me and reflect back at me, I'd love to hear from you either in my mailbox at info at dieandprince.co.za. That's info at dieandprince.co.za. Or else you can find me on Threadbear on Facebook. We have a Facebook group called Threadbear, named for the show where you can just pop in and drop your questions. I would love to hear from you there. I would love to hear your thoughts and your takes on man-made versus natural dyes. Romy, I hope that this answered your question. Thank you for sending in great content for me to use to co-create this show. Elise Tickner asks, In your experience working with children, how do you handle the child that is not able to sit long enough to listen to your directions? Well, Elise, children are not my strong point. I, I really do prefer to work with adult children. And I, I have a number of reasons for this. Uh, mainly, uh, my main reason being that I, I feel parenting is a, a very unique thing that every single p parent does in a very unique way. And as a teacher, I don't really know what that unique way is. And um, I'm, I'm quite mindful about imposing my ways on children that might not be the parents way so uh, I very I very often uh, don't enjoy ch teaching children um, and and also I really enjoy the interactions with adults uh, I think um, my, my own decision to remain childless is kind of a snapshot of my um, kind of uh, natural tolerance levels for the little ones and, and and tolerance isn't quite the right word I just I, I don't have the right wiring um, to give so much of my life 
to to raising a child um, and I, I don't like to spend that much time around children um, I'm, I'm easily irritated by the noise I've got some noise sensitivity and um, I find their, their noise quite um, a, a difficult thing for myself to process in my daily life um, so I'm actually quite happy that I haven't had any children um, and I've never really elected to teach them that often so there have been times when I have taught kids and what I know about them um, is that they're just little adults and I learned a lot about ADD children from one of my friends who for some time helped me in my business and he's extremely ADD and I, I learned that with kids with a short attention span you need to give them something to do ask them to help they're very helpful so ask them to help which will engage them emotionally give them something active to do uh, whatever you do don't give them a list of things to do and sometimes let them find their own way so a, a child who may not be listening to me speak in the class might actually be watching what his friend is doing or might actually take instruction from his friend more easily than from me um, so sometimes I let them help each other and and also I always say consider the end use first so what are we here to do um, I'm not around I don't view my role as a teacher to be to drum lessons into children. I believe that my role as a teacher is to create delight in my students and and to unlock their courage for them so that they, they move from a state of disbelief in their own abilities into the state of bliss where they feel competent in their own skills and their own excitement at the things that they might make on their own. So I'm more about unlocking the door than telling kids what to do. So uh, when I find a child with a short attention span, I, I ask them for help. I try to engage them in activities that they will enjoy and care about. And I keep the talking to a minimum. Let's just make stuff. Uh, luckily with the kinds of workshops that I teach children, uh, there can be a lot of that because um, normally I, I taught either printing or tie-dyeing or something like that which was quite, kind of immediate and with tie-dye you really are at an advantage as a teacher because the kids really want to see what is going to come out of that mad experiment that you do in front of them so it isn't that difficult to get their undivided attention so color works pretty well to engage them too and um, play dress up uh, in the kids' classes, I always got them to dress up and put on gloves and aprons and all of that. They like playing dress up. So if you can dress them up in some way, get them to play dress up, that also very often engages them in kind of a more physical way in what you're doing. Uh, you want to engage them, the whole human, when you've got a kid like that. Get them to climb in roots and all and help you. Uh, that's what I would do. I'm, I'm not an expert on kids. But that's what I would do. 
Um, and it's kind of similar to what I would do with an adult child too. I hope that answered your question for you, Elise. Uh, thank you for sending in a great question for the show. If there's anybody listening here who has any ideas and anything that you want to reflect of me, I would love to hear from you. Please send me an email at info at dieandprince.co.za. That's I-N-F-O at D-Y-E-A-N-D-P-R-I-N-T-S dot C-O dot Z-A. Thank you so much for sending in your questions. For those of you who are a part of the benefits program, I would like to apologize to the members on the $25 tier. Uh, you are still waiting for your course, I'm aware, and I'm just busy putting the finishing touches on it for you. You will have it before the end of the month. Um, it's only the, what, 18th today, so I've still got a week or so to get it to you before the month closes. I really must apologize for the delay, but I've been adding some extra juicy information to it for you, and um, I'm hoping you'll like what the course has turned into. So for those of you listening, the patrons on the $25 tier will be receiving the brand new Mending no, upcycled fabrics for beginners uh, course that I'm busy working on. Uh, and that is exclusive patron-only content this month. Then for those of you who were curious about my Mending is Life Extending course that patrons received uh, as a benefit last month, it is now up and running and available on my Thinkific platform if you would like to sign up for the course. So Mending is Life Extending is now available to the general public for $15. Uh, it's a great little course uh, that shows you how mending can actually extend your life. I kid you not, really, really. You can live longer if you start to mend your clothes and in this course I'll show you how. So, uh, yeah, if you're interested in that little course, just let me know. If you can't find it online anywhere, just send me an email or a message or something, and I will send you the long link via email. <clears throat> That's Mending is Life Extending. Then, um, I'm also very excited about the patterns and designs that I'm working on at the moment. Um, I'm busy getting more of my Lino designs ready uh, and available for download. So I'm putting them up on the Thinkific platform. Basically what I'm doing is I'm making a black and white print on paper of my actual Lino design. Then I'm taking a photograph of that black and white image and making the high resolution version available for you to download to use on your personal projects. So you can use them for coloring in, you can use them for printing, you can use them for embroidery, you can use them for 
applique, you can use them for anything, painting, whatever you want to do. Um, so you, you, the fee that you're paying me is, is just a small amount uh, to be allowed to use my designs so that I can pay some bills. Um, and then you get to use my designs and have some fun with them. And um, what I'm also doing with the designs is I'm playing out different versions of them in my photo program so that I'm creating some exciting tiled effects and centerpieces and focal points. And all of those I'm also making available for download um, on Thinkific. So as that collection grows, I will keep you updated on all of the social networks. So if you want to go and take a look, uh, you can. And just see, I've got three designs, two two designs up so far, um, and there are new ones to follow very shortly. So keep an eye on my uh, Thinkific school. You'll see the designs being added there all the time. And hopefully by the end of the year, I'll have a nice little selection that you can browse through there to choose the ones that you like best um, when you when you want to work create something interesting. Okay, so that's the designs and the benefits program. What else? Uh, YouTube. There's always something new on YouTube, so please go and take a look. You will find me at Die and Prince on YouTube. I put up new video there every single week for you, and remember my video is free. So for those of you who are on a really tight budget and can't afford any of my courses or even the Patreon, uh, there's free video for you on YouTube. I don't leave anybody out. There's something for everybody on all of the platforms. For those of you who are listening who are members of the Upcycled Cloth Collective, have you noticed that we are inching our way towards 57,000 members? Can you believe it? I am super excited. I get goosebumps when I think about it. Because when I first started this community, I didn't think we'd have 20,000 people by this stage. So the fact that we have almost three times as many is absolutely, absolutely amazing. Thank you to every single one of you who plays a part in the success of the community. I appreciate all of you so very, very much. We are doing some exciting things at the moment. Uh, our admin team is hard at work behind the scenes, uh, training new team members and, and just uh, solidifying some of the regional and city groups to get them um, up and running properly because they've existed as shells for a very long time now and some of them are, are truly coming to life, uh, especially the UK and Australia groups that are now uh, more than 3,000 members strong are starting to really do things on their own and make sense. When we first started the regional groups, a lot of members were very skeptical and asked us what they were about. But now that they're starting to work, they're making more sense. So um, 
just to, to explain a bit more clearly, the AppCycle Cloth Collective is a global community where we all align around one core belief, which is reducing textile and fiber waste in the landfill. And then our regional and city groups exist, especially so that our members can connect in the real world, in real life, through meetups and through D-stashes. So there are opportunities to exchange resources and exchange information. And very often that is, is more easily achieved on a regional level where people actually have accessibility to the events and that kind of thing. I would like to thank all of you very, very special people who actually listen to this show all the way to the end. So here's a little gift at the end of my rainbow. Uh, if you send me your email address, I will send you the link to uh, my brand new course, Upcycled Fabric, an introduction for beginners. So send me your email address to info at dieandprince.co.za. Tell me you listen to the podcast all the way to the end to find this message and I will send you your complimentary link. Thank you for being dedicated to me. This is your reward. Thank you for listening to my podcast. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you're looking for me on the social networks, you'll find me all over the place at Die and Prince. That's D-Y-E-A-N-D-P-R-I-N-T-S. On YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Find me at Die and Prince. I'd really love to hear from you.